Okay, so this, we're in Hebrews this morning. I always say this morning, because whenever we have church on Sunday, it feels like morning. I think, out of all the books that we've gone through, Paul's letters, this is the hardest one to do in a week for me. Because it is a sweeping overview of the Old Testament uh, in a deeply theological view. Uh, And he says, (laughs) after all that he says, the writer of Hebrews says, there's much that we have to say, but we can't speak of these things in detail. (laughs) It's like, what were you just doing? Blowing my mind for for eight chapters. So, um, this will have to be a shallow flyover, um, but we'll we'll do the best we can. Um, First of all, let me just remind us, you know, one of the reasons that we were walking through Scripture, well, the primary reason we were walking through all of Scripture is to, is to really be able to read the New Testament the way that we should. And by that I mean to understand who Jesus is. And the, the primacy of Jesus to the whole thing that God has been doing. His whole project with creating mankind, uh, sticking with mankind, redeeming mankind, making covenants in the Old Testament, keeping covenants, working with his people, sending his people into exile, bringing them out of exile. Um, we want to understand that, that Christ is the fulfillment of all of that. And when we, when we know the New Testament, it helps us read the Old Testament. When we know the Old Testament, it helps us read the New Testament. And they really, you have to read them together or else you'll miss, you'll miss everything. Um, so I want to read a couple of the scriptures uh, that are central for us and just remind us uh, because they, they really apply if, if any book throws us back into the Old Testament it's Hebrews um, it's, it's really a retelling of the whole story in light of Christ more than any book in the New Testament so Luke 22 you remember this um, I'm going to walk to Emmaus sorry Luke 24 25, Luke 24, verse 25. It's after his resurrection, and he's walking with these guys on the road to Emmaus, and he says, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And then on in verse 46, it says, or verse 45, it says, Then he opened, uh, start on 44. These are my words that I spoke with you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So, Jesus himself says, the Old Testament message is that the Messiah must be crucified and raised. That's it. If you want to sum up the Old Testament, it is the Messiah must be crucified and raised. So we always have to read the Old Testament through that lens. Jesus himself said, if you're reading it right, this is what you're seeing in the Old Testament. 
Uh, and then in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, and this is one of, one of, times, one of many times where in the New Testament there is a retelling of the Old Testament with a particular emphasis to make a point. Remember when we talked about this in, uh, so like Stephen's speech in Acts is like this. Uh, Paul's argument in Romans 9 through 11 is like this, where he says, all right, let's start from the beginning. Let's look at Mo- Abraham, Moses, all these guys. Um, it's a retelling of the story, pulling out a particular point. And here he is, he is pulling out a particular point. Um, the writer of Hebrews does it as well. Actually, the whole book is that. We'll, we'll, we'll get there in a second. So, 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So right there, he's saying, it, right there in the Old Testament, when, when, the, when the water flowed out of the rock, that was, that was Messiah. That was Jesus. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. This is going to be a big theme of the book of Hebrews. Now, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So the reason I bring those scriptures up is that that's what the book of Hebrews is doing. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of people. We're not quite sure who. It's called the book of Hebrews, but we're not sure exactly where these people were, what their exact mix was. Uh, We also are not 100% sure who the author was. Uh, tradition about in the second or third century picked it up and, and attributed it to Paul. Since then, that, that has kind of, people have backed off of that. Um, regardless, that doesn't really matter. I'm not really. <laughs> Sometimes when you read a commentary, they spend so much time talking about the authorship issues, and it's like, you know, I, I really don't care that much. <laughs> so what if it wasn't written by Paul? I still think every word is true. Uh, so but that's what the book of Hebrews is. We don't know who it was written to. Other than we know what was going on, based on what the writer tells us. And one of the things that was going on is they were experiencing suffering and persecution. So that's one thing. The other thing that was going on is they were struggling with sin. They were struggling with sin. And maybe those two were connected in some ways. Uh, One of their sins that they were struggling with was unbelief which is also the sin that uh, prevented the people of God, prevented a whole generation of people of God from entering into the promised land. Um, 
Also, sexual immorality is mentioned in Hebrews, and also bitterness, relational bitterness. So here's a community of people uh, familiar with the Old Testament scriptures who were experiencing persecution on, be, on, on account of their faith in Jesus, but who also needed to, to take some steps forward in, in holiness, particularly uh, faith, trusting God, uh, sexual morality, sexual purity, and uh, relational peace. Okay, so that's, that's the, kind of the context for the book. So if you want to go to uh, Hebrews 1, along with that, they were being tempted to seek other, uh, to, to, to move away from Christ, to drift away from Christ, maybe to supplement the gospel with other teachings. Uh, they weren't it was hard for them to really keep believing that in Christ was everything they needed. That he was, that he was it. All right? And so, all of that works together to give us a picture of what the book of Hebrews is for. The first thing is to put Jesus at the center and say, no, 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 no. You don't want to go away from him because when you leave him, you leave everything. You leave the greatest. There's nothing besides him. He is supreme. All right? So he starts out, guns blazing. Listen to this profound statement. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the exact radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then he goes off and he talks about how, first of all, he's superior to angels. Which angels were, um, you remember in Stephen's speech in Acts, when he says, You all who received the law as delivered by angels... So, the Jewish community believed that the Torah on Mount Sinai was delivered to Moses from God through angels. Angels came down and delivered Torah to him, the law. And so he says, listen, now, we're, we, Jesus is something even greater than this word that was, come, that was delivered by angels. He's even greater than the angels. Okay, so he comes out. Jesus is the, he's the definitive statement, more definitive than Torah. And he's greater than the angels who delivered Torah to you. Right? So he, he is starting right at the source of who they, who they believe themselves to be, right at the source of how they live their lives. And he says, Jesus is the fulfillment and supreme in all of that. So let me give you a rough outline. Um, Verse, uh, chapters 1 through 4, 13, talk about uh, how the Son of God, Jesus, the Son of God, is superior to the whole, to everything that the Old Testament was pointing to. Uh, particularly, he talks about angels, he talks about Moses and Joshua, the Exodus, Moses and Joshua, and then the Promised Land. 
And he says, if you look at that whole story, you see that Jesus is better than any of that. Um, Then he makes a turn, and he really zooms in on, uh, in chapters 4 through 10, 4.14 through 10.18, he zooms in on the uh, priesthood and everything involved with that. So priesthood, sacrifice, the tabernacle, the altar, the blood, that whole thing. He says, you guys, need to, you guys need to wrap your minds around this. Jesus is the king. He is also the priest of a lineage that is more superior than the line of Aaron. It's the, he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was, who was a king priest. A priest and a king in one, which all the messianic prophecies talk about the coming of a priest who is also king. It talks about in Zechariah and in, in a couple other places. Melchizedek is the type of that. In, in the Old Testament, he says, all right, first of all, look at his priesthood. But then, look at the sacrifice that this priest offers. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices for himself because he's already perfect. And then with that perfect body, he gives that perfect body as the sacrifice that he's offering. So this perfect priest of the highest order offers the sacrifice of his own body and blood which does away with any need for any animal sacrifice. And he hasn't done it in the earthly tabernacle. He did it in the real tabernacle in the heavenly realms. Before the actual presence of God. Not in the shadow of it. Alright, so that's the second part. The whole letter is written, as he says in the last chapter. He says, I've written to you briefly by way of exhortation." The book of Hebrews calls itself a brief word of exhortation. I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, you know, the, the writer being a little too humble there. So the last part of Hebrews focuses on exhortation. In light of this, given everything we've said about Jesus, all of his supremacy, all of his perfection, the ways in which he has done away with uh, the, the, the version ones of this covenant. And he has done something far greater. Done away with all the sacrifice. It's, it's a bunch of therefores. Therefore, in light of this. And then he starts to exhort them based on their current situation. Okay? And then this, the last part, the exhortation is where we get the, the great, uh, the hall of faith, they call it. Hebrews 11. Where he marches through the whole Old Testament again. And says, it's all about faith. You can have faith. Despite what you see. Alright, so that's the rough outline. Um, So, let let me just walk through as quickly as I can. And I want to pull out, I don't know, three or four loosely, uh, not really connected with each other. But just three or four exhortations that this book gives us. First of all, let me just say something about exhortations. Uh, exhortation is vital in the body of Christ. Exhortation is what one of the primary things that the community of God needs to exercise among themselves. Okay? Because exhortation, what it really means, it, you can. The word is translated um, encouragement, exhortation. Uh, what it means is to uh, literally, it means to, to call someone to, to your side. Um, it's what the, actually the Holy Spirit is called. The great 
comforter, encourager, the paraclete. Have you heard that word, the paraclete? You heard the Holy Spirit called the paraclete? That's from the Greek word for encourage or exhort, paraclesis, uh, parakaleo, to call someone to your side. And it means we're headed in a direction. You are wavering. Let me strengthen you. Let me, let me come and, and, and invigorate you and urge you toward where we're headed. That's exhortation. And we need that in our lives. And so this whole letter is an exhortation. But he's also saying, I'm exhorting you to exhort one another. We need this. All right, so here's, uh, here's the big picture. Or that's the big picture. Let's, let's walk through a little bit. Uh, chapter 1 talks about angels. Uh, beginning of chapter 2, he says, So, listen, we need to pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Guys, the problem is not with the message. The problem is that you need to really understand the message that has been delivered to you. You're looking at the problems in your life. You're looking at the suffering. You're looking at your struggles. You need to pay closer attention to the message because in the message is all the answers to your struggles and all the power that you need to overcome your weaknesses. Pay closer attention to the message. For since the message declared by angels, that would have been the Torah delivered down on on Mount Sinai to Moses, the message delivered by angels proved to be reliable. How are we going to escape if we neglect the message of Jesus? How God has now spoken to us through his son. How are we going to escape if we neglect that? It was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So that's really the first exhortation that he gives. Don't leave this message. Press into it. Pay more attention to it. Don't pay less attention to the gospel. Keep digging into it and you'll find what you need. Is that a word that you can hear? If, if, if it seems to be like, oh man, we just hear the same stuff all the time, don't drift away from it. Maybe you need to dig into it more and say, if this isn't gripping me, the problem's not with the message. The problem's with me. And I need to hear it. I need to dig into it. All right. So then he says, uh, I'm also just going to read some verses that I think are awesome. Uh, and and serve as a good exhortation for us. It was fitting for he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. You're experiencing suffering? Guess what? This whole thing, suffering unleashes the kingdom of God and the power of God. The whole thing was founded through suffering. So don't drift away in the face of suffering. Understand that suffering allows God to act in a way that you won't even imagine. For he said, he who sanctifies and those who sanctified, who are sanctified, all have one source. So he says, he, uh, he himself partook of the same things. He became a man. He suffered. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That he might, that through death, through dying, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What what are we talking about here? This is the Exodus. He's he's getting ready to talk about Moses. 
But he says, that exodus was just a foreshadow of the real exodus. When Jesus became a man and died so that he could bring us out of the real slave, uh, the real slavery, that is, to the devil. And the devil holds us in bondage through fear of death. As long as we fear death, we will think that we need to sin, that we, we, we can't trust God. We need to get all we can out of life. But if we do not fear death, that means that there is no obstacle between us and being the people that God wants us to be. There's no obstacle between us and holiness. There's no obstacle between us and going through suffering, embracing suffering to redeem someone else. You can go through that because there is no death anymore. Even if you die, and when you die, you will be raised back to life. So, um, and he says, Jesus is greater than Moses. And then he comes to another exhortation here in chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin's tricky. Sin will deceive you. We are easily deceived. Exhort one another constantly, every day, so that you don't become hardened. Why? Because this is what happened in the wilderness. You're no better than they are. Okay? Humanity has not changed. Our Savior has been manifested, but humanity has not changed. We are not better. We are not better off than the Israelites. We can just as easily be hardened and deceived and become evil and unbelieving. So we need to exhort one another. The difference is that we now see that Jesus has destroyed the power of death. All right? So he says, they could not enter the promised land, their rest, because they did not believe. They didn't have faith. Um, and one important thing to note, you remember when we were talking about faith in, I think, when we were talking about Thessalonians, what faith really is? Faith is not just a mental belief. It's, uh, it's very much connected with action and obedience and loyalty and devotion. So when he's talking about unbelief, it's not about like doubting God's existence, although that, that is involved with it. It's about doubting that God is able to be who he says he is. And as a result, me having to do things my own way because I don't trust that God is going to bring his purposes about in my life if I do it his way. Right? It's about facing hunger in the wilderness and saying, if you're so mighty, why, don't you, why can't you feed us? And we're grumbling and complaining. That's lack of faith. Lack of trust. He equates faith with obedience and unbelief with disobedience. So never disconnect those two things. It's not like, oh, it's just I don't have enough faith. That's disobedience. That is a disobedient heart. So at the end of that, this first section where he's walking through and saying Jesus is superior, Jesus is superior, he has this great exhortation about the word of God itself. All right? Let us strive, let, in verse 11, chapter 4, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God 
is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. What's he saying? If you're, if you're struggling in your belief, you need to get into the word of God. And it, will look, and, and, and it will pierce your heart. You're going to see how they fell in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And that is going to undo you. You all read the word of God. And see, let your heart be exposed for what it is. That, that unbelieving part of you that says, Oh, I I'm not sure what God, I'm not sure why my life is the way it is. Read the word of God. And it's going to cut through all of that. And it will bring you... Uh, straight into the presence of God, and he'll be exposed. That's the power, and he's, what's he talking about? The Old Testament there. By the Holy Spirit, obviously. This living and active, I mean, these, these are just words on a page. But the Holy Spirit takes that, and he goes straight to your heart. And it's what he's doing right here. He's saying, look at the, in the Old Testament. Look at yourself. Look at your current situation. There's no difference. You're going to fail to enter the rest if you don't take heed here. All right, then he, he talks for a long time about the priesthood. Um, we cannot, there, there's no way we can talk about all that. Um, I wish we had more time. They, you know, Romans or Hebrews really deserves about 12 weeks. And every place, you know, we need to go back and dig into the Old Testament and read the stuff about the tabernacle again and read the stuff in Leviticus about the sacrifices and the significance of blood and everything that that did. Um, like the writer of Hebrews, he says, we can't speak of these things. We have much more to say. Okay? So we'll have to suffice, suffice it to say that there's a lot to say, uh, but we can't speak of these things in detail. Um, but what I do want to underline is that um, just the fact that Jesus in himself embodied all that, the whole priesthood, tabernacle, uh, sacrifice, blood, he embodied that all in himself. And the more you look at that, the more you see that, uh, the more you are captured with um, the power that is at, that is at work in, in you and available to you to live a holy life. The whole thing about blood and purification, that was to make people holy, to cleanse people from sin. And he says, do you understand how clean we can get? you understand how sufficient the blood of Christ is? How able it is to cleanse us? To the uttermost. He says, save us to the uttermost. And also, it gives us boldness. The grace is available to us. And, the, and the, the atonement has been made so that we have boldness. There's no excuse. If you're struggling, go ask God for help. There's no barrier between you and God now. There's no barrier between you and all the grace you need to overcome whatever sin you're facing. And so, it's not that God needs to do more, it's that we need to receive more from God. So that's why his exhortations are like, go charge into the presence of God. Beat down the doors, because you're not going to die if you do anymore. <laughs> that's been taken care of. So go beat down the doors and plead to God for the grace and the strength that you need, and then go out and live in that holiness. So he says, it's all there, but then he, he warns them. He says, but the penalty for neglecting that now is even greater. 
There's, if you keep on sinning, there's no sacrifice left. If you keep on and you, you persist in intentional sin, what else can God do? He's done it all. And so if you do not receive what he has done and, and then turn from your sin, there's nothing left for God to do. The only thing that's left for you, he says, is, is a fearful expectation of judgment. And that's true. I mean, we know in our lives when, 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 he, when we are stuck in persistent sin, that's what our life is marked by. We just, all we have is a fearful expectation of judgment. That's what we, we live under that burden. But if we would turn from that, receive the grace of God, and run the race that is set before us, that's it. That's all. That, the sacrifice has already been made. So to keep sinning is to, is to tell God the sacrifice was not enough. That's, what, that's, what he's, that's the language he uses. You're, you're trampling, he says you're outraging the spirit of grace when you keep sinning. So let me read, let me read some of this. Chapter 10. Uh, Verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Christ has died so that it is now possible for us to be forgiven without having to offer a sacrifice. Okay? The final sacrifice has been made. Therefore, given all of that, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, we read this uh, before communion. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, it is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And I know in my own life, you know, when you live in sin, that's that's all you you live with, is is a fearful expectation of judgment, this feeling that you cannot... Uh, that, that you are under condemnation. And I know you all have experienced this. I mean, before you come to the Lord, before you start living a holy life, you live under that burden. And everyone 
everyone on UK's campus who hasn't turned to the Lord, they live under that burden. They, they, somewhere deep down inside them, they have a fearful expectation of judgment. And they deny it. They shove it down. They, they, they medicate it with pleasures. But, but that is the truth in everyone's life. When they have not uh, received the forgiveness and turned from their sin. There's a fearful expectation of judgment. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? So spurned the Son of God, basically said, big deal. So what? I'm going to keep living the way that I'm going to live. Profane the blood of the covenant. What does profane mean? It means to, to make base, to make common. Yeah, just like, you know, blood of, the, blood of the covenant. You know, it's just like anything else. Nothing special about it. To bring it low. And has outraged the spirit of grace. Now just think about that. We don't ever think of grace being outraged. (laughs) But the spirit of grace can be outraged. That's not something we like to we want to think about when we think about grace. The spirit of grace being outraged. When is the spirit of grace outraged? When we go on sinning deliberately after understanding the depth of what Jesus accomplished. And you can understand why. As generous as you are, as nice as you are, if someone just kept on rejecting your generosity, you would get fed up. Like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> you can... It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So he gives this stern warning. And this is one of the most sobering passages in the New Testament. And this is one of the parts of the Word of God, I think, that... that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. This is serious stuff. But he also, he doesn't leave them there. He leaves them with an encouragement. He says, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Um, so he said, you, you guys have tasted it. You've understood it. Now stick, stay the course. Okay? Stay the course. You have need of endurance, he says, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Now, this brings us to the chapter 11. And what I want to say about this chapter is if you want to understand faith, go here. And this is how you need to look at faith. These, all, these people are all examples of faith. Um, and everything that the book has been talking about, everything that the letter to the Hebrews has been talking about, everything we need to know about faith, He says, you can see this in these characters in the Old Testament who walked with God. And their faith is demonstrated in all sorts of ways. And this is why I like this. So, for example, Abraham. Well, he says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So faith is something about your your posture before God, your attitude before God in bringing your sacrifice to him. Uh, 
verse 8, Abraham obeyed by faith. Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. Faith says, yes, I know that I will receive an inheritance. That's part of faith. Do you have that faith? I have an inheritance. I'm obeying to do what God has called me to do, and I am knowing and being assured that I have an inheritance. That's faith. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations. Uh, He talks about Sarah. She received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Faith is considering God faithful. Faith is knowing that God can do what he has said he will do. That's faith. Verse 13, these all died in faith. They hadn't received the things that were promised, but having seen them, And greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. So faith says, what my life looks like now is not what I'm living to. So you can see how this would have encouraged the Hebrews. If they're experiencing persecution, if if their lives, if they're struggling with sin. Hey, don't live to right now. Have faith. Uh, I like this one. By faith, Moses, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. That's awesome. I would rather be mistreated with Christ. I would rather have my life ruined and be with Messiah than to have all the treasures of Egypt. Right? And you can hear this challenge. Where else are you going to go, Hebrews? What are you going to turn away? If you're, if you're drifting away from Christ, what, what, what else is out there? The treasures of Egypt? The heights of human civilization? None of that is worth being mistreated with Christ. None of that's greater. So, he just... Faith, 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 faith. And faith is just such an all-encompassing term to describe the the way our relationship with God works and the way that we please Him. So, therefore... He says again in chapter 12, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these people who understood, who got it, who understood faith, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And here's the ultimate faith, the faith of all faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and deceited at the right hand of God. Consider him. This is an act of faith. Consider Jesus. Keep thinking about him. And it's like, pay closer attention to what you've heard. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Are you weary or faint-hearted? Do you encounter weariness or faint-heartedness? The answer to that is to consider Jesus. Call him to mind. Think about his life. Think about him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Think about him sweating drops of blood. Think about him saying, if there's any other way, nevertheless, thy will be done. 
Think about him staying on the cross when he was being taunted to come off of the cross and prove his power. Consider Jesus. And then tell me about your problems. Tell me about what you're facing. You haven't resisted to the point of shedding your blood, this thing that you're struggling with. Show me the wounds. Show me the pierced sides. Show me the show me the rod bruises on your body. No. This is nowhere close to the struggle and the suffering that Jesus endured so that you could live a victorious life. You need to endure. Then he talks about um, this is again a great section about how God uh, disciplines us as sons. God will, just like the Hebrews in the wilderness, the Israelites in the wilderness, He will cause you to suffer hunger so that you can see what's in your heart and whether you obey Him or not. He will discipline you as His son. And if He didn't do that, you know, son, you're a bastard. You're illegitimate. The sign of God's fatherly love in your life is that He is disciplining you. He is working on you. He's conforming you to the image of His Son in whom He is well pleased. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. You can fail to obtain the grace of God. We don't like to say this. No one really actually believes this, I don't think. <laughs> Come down to it. Yeah, but God loves me unconditionally. But you can fail to obtain His love. You can fail to obtain His grace. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Right? The desire just becomes so great. And the need becomes so strong that you just, in a state of desperation, you just forget about your whole inheritance and indulge in this single act of pleasure. Faith overcomes that. In the face of that, we need to call upon the grace of God. Consider Jesus. Right? And then he ends with some very practical advice in chapter 13. And he talks a lot about sacrifice. These are the sacrifices that are pleasing to God. Because he has taken away the need for sacrifice to atone for our sins, and in himself he has brought us close to who he is, he has, he has allowed us to come boldly into his presence. Now, here are the sacrifices that are pleasing to him. And they are acts of love, good works, right? hospitality, uh, all the practical things that we give ourselves to. But these aren't like just light moral Suggestions. This is like, if you've been transformed by God, this is now what life looks like. This is the new daily offering. This is the new goat and, and Levitical code. This is what it looks like. This is the sacrificial system when you live a life of love. Hospitality to strangers, remembering those who are in prison. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. 
right? We, we offer to God pure marriages. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. These are the things that, that are pleasing aroma to God and the things that, because of Christ's power uh, and deliverance in our lives, the things that we are able to accomplish. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And this final benediction is is great. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. This, and that's, this is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He works in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. And that's an amazing thing. And if you yield to that work, you will walk in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord. You won't drift away when you encounter suffering. You won't give over to sin because the desire just becomes so strong, you will live your life in a way that pleases God and you will be a living sacrifice uh, in the way that that Jesus was. Um, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Nice. Um, And so that's it. All of, you know, this this really sums up for us all the stuff we've been talking about. Uh, All of the lessons of the Old Testament, all of the uh, viewing those through the lens of Jesus and seeing what, what God was always aiming for, it has now come to pass. And now God is working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. He's writing his law on your hearts and on your minds. He's not giving you an external code that you're always going to fail and always going to have to bring the blood of goats and bulls. He is working in you that which is pleasing in his sight. And it's his work. And if you yield to it and trust him and remain faithful, uh, he will receive glory. And you're going to be the person that you were created to be. Amen? All right. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's Hebrews. And uh, I, I, wish, I wish we could spend more time there. Um, I, I, I didn't even have time myself to go back into all the Old Testament places uh, because it's so rich. You know, and, and it just the Old Testament then comes to life. I want to go back and read through the Pentateuch again and, and uh, have that living inside of me. Um, so I, I am encouraged to, um, number one, uh, inc- you know, exhort you all to let's, let's exhort each other and remind you all that, that we need to live a, a, we need to have a climate of exhortation to holy living among us. Um, and we should, we should desire that and, and offer that. Um, not picking on each other, not, not critiquing each other, but exhorting one another. Uh, and all the more so as we see the day approaching. So I, I, that's one thing I want to uh, leave us with. The other thing is uh, to uh, challenge us to consider Jesus, to, to really mull over the story, mull over all these things that have just been you know, coming at us full force every week in Paul's letters mull these things over uh, and anticipate greater levels of victory in your life, and greater levels of faith, um, greater victory over challenges that, that come 
our way and, and, and temptations and everything and run with endurance uh, the race that's set before us. Um, so I, I, I receive, and I, I want to pray for us all to receive the brief and to bear with the, the brief word of exhortation uh, that has been delivered to us. Uh, maybe go back this week and, and read it through again uh, and, uh, and let it speak to you as an exhortation. Um, let the word of God be living and active and, and let it point out to you maybe some areas that uh, you need to, uh, to bring before the Lord and, and allow him to deal with. Uh, maybe some, some, some unbelief or maybe some uh, sin, some lingering sin that's there. Uh, I pray that God would reveal that to us. Uh, so let's pray and then we can uh, flee to cooler climates. <laughs> Father, thank you that you have um, sent your son and that he has accomplished all of your purposes. And Lord, we want to receive the exhortation that's laid down for us in the book of Hebrews. We want to receive the warnings to pay close attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. To exhort one another so that we are not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And to consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the awareness that you are working in us that which is pleasing in your sight. And that you are disciplining us as a father, the children whom he loves. And Lord, help us to yield to that and receive it and to live in a way that pleases you uh, all the more. I pray that our good works would increase. Lord, that our hospitality would increase. Uh, Lord, that our marriages would be strong. And all the things laid down for us, Lord, in, in your scripture would be, would be working and would be increasing to your glory. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.